Happy New Year from Three Guys in a Flick. Normally, this is where you would be listening to a fine fellow telling you to take your seats. The show is about to begin. Don't worry, he's coming. We here at Three Guys wanted to take this moment to say thank you to all of you who have listened to us. We're up to 2,000 downloads and climbing. So keep listening, share with a friend, and enjoy this special episode. Tonight, we open the vault and release one of our early episodes. Back before the fan picks, back before the genre debacle, we each put five movies into the Bronco helmet. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the professor's pick of The Untouchables. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Well then, you just fulfilled the first rule of law enforcement. Make sure that when your shift is over, that you go home alive. Here endeth the lesson. Welcome to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, The Untouchables. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from my basement, my name is Don, and to my right we have our comic book guy, John. I'm feeling real touchable tonight. And to my left we have the professor, Ken. Yes, you do. So we're talking about The Untouchables. Uh, Whose pick was this? It was mine. And why did you pick this film there, Professor? I think that this movie is a really pretty looking movie. And it had been a while since I had seen it. Had you seen it before watching it the other night? I had not seen it personally before. And I have to say, I'm very impressed with the camera angles on it. The camera shots, it's obvious, you know, the directions that the director was going with with the camera shots. Who directed this? Brian De Palma. Yeah. Uh, the Untouchables is a 1987 crime drama directed by Brian De Palma, written by David Marnett, Oscar Fraley, Elliot Ness, and Chip Miller. It stars Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, Robert De Niro, Andy Garcia, Charles Martin Smith, and Billy Drago. And it is about... During the era of prohibition in the United States, federal agent Elliot Ness sets out to stop ruthless Chicago gangster Al Capone and, because of corruption, assembles a small hand-picked team to help him out. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie made $76.2 million in North America and it grossed $106.2 million worldwide. Yeah, not too bad for a movie loosely based on real facts. I don't understand what you mean, sir. Please. Well, I have issues with movies that say that they're based on the truth or based on a true story. And then they go in and they just change everything or they combine elements or they give somebody a kid who never had a kid at that time or they put two people face-to-face in a room who never met face-to-face. Wait a minute. Does it really say that at the beginning of the movie based on a true story? Wasn't that how it's advertised? I don't think so. It, It does not open with that. I know that it's supposedly more connected to the TV series it, it, than it is it, it, supposedly on based on facts. 
but it, it, I, I don't know. I get, I get a little bothered by that, especially, you know, if, if I don't know the facts, I think I can enjoy a movie more, but when I know what really happened, it takes me out of a movie. Well, it, it is based on historical events loosely, but yeah, the, the uh, there's a lot uh, in this movie that is inaccurate or uh, fictional. The raid at the Canadian border, that never happened. The uh, the courthouse or the railway scene, neither of those things ever happened. Uh, Ness didn't kill Nitty. The, the whole tax evasion bit, that is uh, ultimately what brought him down, but um, Elliot Ness had little to nothing to do with that. Sure. And, and as uh, you, you were just pointing out, John, the two characters, they, they never met face-to-face. As a matter of fact, quite to the contrary, uh, Al Capone wanted nothing to do with Elliot Ness because he thought that if any of his people were going to have any type of interaction with them, they're going to bring more heat, more attention to themselves. And so he didn't, he had all of his people in real life say that you are, I want nothing to do with him. And in, and publicly speaking, Al Capone looked at Elliot Ness as a minor nuisance and really gave very little time to him. Yeah. yeah. Plus they made Ness out to be kind of a good family man with his wife and his daughter. He never had a child at that time. Um, so that whole little touching scene with his daughter never happened. They, you know, they killed people that never happened. As you've mentioned, professor, the one thing that did happen and we'll get to this later is that baseball bat scene that really happened. Yeah. And so the, obviously the filmmakers and whoever produced this film took some liberties and they were going to make, I see that Elliot Ness is, uh, Elliot Ness is credited as a writer. So he's not going to make himself to be a complete douchebag. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about this before. Uh, the narrator is the point of view of the, of the, of the person who's telling the story. And if it's about a certain person, they're going to want to make themselves look, look better than they were. As far as them never having a kid or never, never met face to face, you know, historically, I personally don't give a shit. I thought that the way Brian De Palma took what were loose stories and he kind of built a bigger story around it. It made for a good movie. And as far as historical accuracy, and I guess it would depend on the subject, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but with this one, it it I would have never known that. And well, what about like the character Jim Jim Malone? Yeah, Sean Connery's character. Sure, great character. Sean Connery, I think, did a great job in the movie. Best supporting actor. Character never existed in real life. So what? So it's like they built it up to this friendship and all the things with Elliot Ness never happened. Did you buy the friendship? If did yeah, you, I did. I think the first time I saw it. Did you enjoy Sean Connery as the character? I did. Did you enjoy the character? I enjoyed the character until I learned he didn't exist. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, buddy. Fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. Uh, the the filmmaker. The first time you watched it, the filmmaker succeeded in what they were trying to do, and they created a good character that you liked. Yeah. But so if whether I, he existed, put it real this or not, way. doesn't matter. If I watch this movie to try to cheat in history class and then go take the test, I'm gonna fail the test. <laughs> well, yeah. Why are you using a Hollywood movie? Don't use a Hollywood. Because I don't want to read the book. Use Cliff Notes. There's this thing called the internet. It's on the line. Yeah, and it's that's great. where I get the movie. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. If I'm going to watch a movie or read the Cliff Notes, I'm going to watch the movie. All right. The and sun- then I'm going to get the teacher's going to figure it out, and I'm in all kinds of trouble, and Brian De Palma's to blame. 
the summer this movie came out, it was a really big summer uh, for movies in general, 1987. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2, it was definitely the, the biggest movie of the summer, but this was also the summer of Platoon, Fatal Attraction, Three Men and a Baby, Lethal Weapon, Predator. And the movie summer ended up being heavily affected by teenagers in general not going back to the same movies over and over again as a result of this. Movies such as uh, Untouchables, Witches of Eastwick, uh, Full Metal Jacket, even the movie Stakeout ended up doing better because teenagers were going to see grown-up movies more. Yeah, yeah. God, that is a good summer. Lethal Weapon, Predator. I like Stakeout. Did you ever see Stakeout with Emilio yeah. Estevez and Richard yep. Dreyfuss? Fantastic flick. Uh, Platoon. Lethal yeah, Weapon. Okay. That's what I said, Lethal Weapon. I mean, that gave us Martin or Riggs and Murtaugh. Yeah, and and we hey. also had RoboCop. Yeah, I'm not a, yeah. I'm not as huge yeah. right. fan as RoboCop as everyone else is, yeah. but I get it. I mean, it, it was okay. But it was a big summer for yeah, movies for sure, for sure. Maybe uh, I wonder. I'm curious what the biggest summer in the '80s because I know '89 pops into mind too. And again, Lethal Weapon is in that mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's a different discussion for a different time. This movie was nominated for some Oscars. Uh, it was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, which was Sean Connery, and he won. Good for him. His only Oscar. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Interesting. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction, Set Direction, uh, Best Costume Design, and Best Original Score. So they were doing something right, I suppose. Yeah, uh, Ennio Morricone. I don't know if you knew this or not. So he's he's the... The, the Good, Bad, and the Ugly trilogy music. Yep. Right? He's credited with like 200 music scores. For 200 films? Yeah. Wow. A ton. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. In general, he did not like the work that ended up happening in the, the work that was produced that he did for The Untouchables. Oh. The score was okay. I mean, it was very triumphant it fit the period so it fit that's fit the what movie. i thought too yeah. um and then uh there's there's a solo saxophone that happens throughout the movie as well that i that i dug yeah. anyway um i thought that this movie was a really pretty movie brian de palma really uh i don't know it felt a little frank capra-esque and certainly you have some of the the, the crispness and and in general i i, I am confident darn near certain that he wanted this you know especially when it came to the crime world corruption looks great all of al capone stuff glitzy glamorous pretty bright you know that it's it's this look that is making the the glamorous side of of crime Mm -hmm. right you've got al capone when he you know always looking slick and, and manicured and prim and proper the way the movie opens that that overhead shot that we see Al, Paco- uh, 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 Al Capone uh, in in the chair, and we get that quick little synopsis about where we're at in history. Yeah, and so you know he is he's the king, and people he is surrounded by people waiting for him. Yeah, they don't. He, yeah, everybody waits for him. Busy right. little bees. He is Al Capone, after all. In 1930, during Prohibition, the notorious gangland kingpin Al Capone supplies illegal liquor and has nearly the entire city of Chicago under his control. Bureau of Prohibition agent Elliot Ness has been tasked with bringing a stop to Capone's activities. 
but his first attempt at a liquor raid fails due to a corrupt policeman tipping off Capone. He then has a chance meeting with a veteran Irish-American officer, Jimmy Malone, who opposes the corruption and offers to help Ness, suggesting they find a man from the police academy who has not yet been under Capone's influence and still believes in the idealistic aspects of law enforcement. They recruit Italian-American trainee George Stone for his superior marksmanship and integrity. Joined by accountant Oscar Wallace, assigned to Ness from Washington, D.C., they conduct a successful raid on a Capone liquor cachet and start to gain positive publicity. The press dubs them the Untouchables. Capone later kills the gangster in charge of the cachet as a warning to his other subordinates. Let's talk about that first overhead scene, the bird's eye view, God view, whatever you want to call it. Um, that, I think, is a great setup for this movie. You know, It shows the power of Capone, all the busy bees around him, all the media that's desperate for words from him, what's going on. There's also a bit of foreshadowing in that scene um, in that Capone gets a cut from when he's getting shaved. Mm -hmm. And that almost, it feels to me like it symbolizes the blood in the water and the sharks are coming. Oh, maybe. I mean, what do you guys think of that scene? I like the barber's look of horror on his face. Yes. Like, am I about ready to be killed? Yes, that's exactly what I thought. When he cuts Capone... The look on his face is he just shit his pants. And at that time, I bet you he was fucked. I bet you Capone gets him at some point. Yeah. I mean, in front of everybody, he's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. But mm -hmm. you just fucking cut Al Capone. Whack, whack that guy. <laughs> you, you whack that motherfucker. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great shot. Uh, Brian De Palma's films, like you said, are pretty. And The Untouchables has uh, some gorgeous shots, and it was filmed uh beautifully and um yeah it, it's a, it's a good opening and it does introduce us to capone as the ultimate as the ultimate kingpin yeah, so yeah and, and, and elliot ness has a long road ahead of him trying to bring this guy down and he has a lot of power without even saying a word you can just make a gesture and things happen i one day will have that power what you think about that big old truck at the raid with that big old uh, cattle scoop on the front of it? Yeah, and after Ness's uh, uh, debacle. Well, but it's the speech he gives, right? Come on, let's go, go make a difference. No, and then, let's go do some good? Something like that, yeah. yeah. But it was it was very motivational. He was trying to get the troops rallied. And yeah. I like the cops are just kind of looking at him like, who the fuck is this guy, yeah. right? And then it turns out to be a complete well, half failure. Well, half of them know... It's going to be a failure because yeah. they're all corrupt cops. Yeah, they're all corrupt cops. Right, and and that's driven home when he gets in into the office the next morning because uh, uh, the uh, the humiliation that he seems to feel by people snickering at him mm -hmm. and and they they posted something the on news the, article I believe on on his office door. It's like you're doing that to. A senior officer you are mocking a senior officer for having a, a bust that didn't go well yeah you guys are all on the take yeah or they're all assholes you know he is the new guy uh he might be the senior officer but he's not he's not part of that precinct or that family yet i, I, would, I would guess i also see it as you know he comes in with all these ideals and you know he's clean and pure and all that and they're all thinking you know, we'll break him with that. He, you know, he, that's not going to last. We all had thought that too. When we started, we were all, 
you know, thinking everything's going to work out great and we're going to be the super cops. And no, yeah, he's, is. he's not above us. Right. Right. It's an interesting point you make about a family, because I think that this story does rely heavily on family. Uh, we see that uh, Elliot, he has, we start out with just his family, but eventually it's his brothers in arms that, you know, he pulls around him. That becomes his family. Yeah. And then uh, Al Capone, he has a crime family and he refers to them, you know, as we famously talked about, you know, the team. So yeah, this story has, uh, you know, families in it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, on that topic. So after his bad day, yeah, Elliot Ness is walking home or walk, just taking a walk and he runs into Jimmy Malone. What'd you guys think of uh, Sean Connery's first appearance in this? I loved it. I think Sean Connery, any movie he was in, uh, he just steals the scenes and that whole, you know, he kind of gathers real quick and it shows, you know, his wisdom from being an older cop, exactly who Elliot Ness is, that he's a police officer, things like that. Um, I just think it was fantastic the way he portrayed that role. I totally loved, uh, Sean Connery in this. This is probably my favorite Sean Connery role that, and Red October. I, I Last Crusade is my favorite Sean Connery. That's an awesome movie. Well, he's as barely well. in it. Last Crusade? Yeah. He's in the whole second half. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's still great, obviously. Not James Bond, huh? James Bond, I know he's the original James Bond, but uh I he I never think about him first as James Bond. I'd say that my first role that I think of Connery is either The Untouchables or Red October. I have to take yeah. back my favorite role. Go ahead. My favorite role, Ramirez. Ramirez? The from, Rock? From Highlander. Oh, from Highlander. Fuck the Scottish guy. Peacock. Yeah. yeah. Isn't he? He's, is he in the first Highlander? He yes. is in the first Highlander like the for first, about first, 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, he's but, in the first act. But no, no, yeah, second act. Well, not much. But he's good in it. He plays a Spaniard in it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So Ramirez Sean, for Lobos, hmm. or Juan Sanchez for Ramirez for Lobos, I think is his name. <laughs> Sean Connery did get a little bit of grief for this role in The Untouchables because he's an Irish guy with a Scottish accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see that for sure. And I, I, I liked the scene and it was, it was a sweet scene and you know, Kevin Costner's like, Oh, this guy, what I didn't really get or what I didn't really, what kind of took me out of it was that he was still a beat cop. And I get that he, you know, gets home, goes home safe and, and and he, he just kind of walks his beat and does all this. But I would think a guy at his age would have been more, more than just a beat cop. I got the impression early on from him that he's kept his head down the whole time. That's why he's still a beat cop. That or he's gotten in trouble, but he's kept his head down so that way he goes home, as you said, every night alive. That's his number one lesson that he teaches. Yeah, maybe. First rule of law. So he, you know, he's never been that guy to outgoing to really take on crime and corruption. He just assumes all police officers are corrupt besides him. And what's the point? He just wants to get home and get his pension. Yeah. I thought that he was probably demoted and he he messed up. And that's why he is a lowly beat cop, if you will, because he messed up. Oh, I can see that now. 
Yeah, that makes more sense. But you could also get the immediate sense that he was uncorruptible. Yeah. And that and that's maybe why, again, why he was a beat cop, because he wasn't corruptible enough to get promoted up. Because everybody yeah, you see like sure. promoted up sure. ends up being corrupt at some point. Sure. sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Ness decides to recruit Malone because he's going to go after Capone. And so Malone says, we're going to need a team. And then they go and recruit uh, Andy Garcia's character, George Stone. I, this is Andy Garcia's first role, I believe. I think it is. Yeah. Can we talk about the church a little bit? Sure. I really loved the camera work that happened when uh, Jimmy shows up to Ness's office and these walls have ears and they take off and they go to the, they go to the church and we get those forced perspective shots that happen. And I thought that it was beautiful looking the way that that was put together. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed that camera shot. And, and, uh, um, I, I also really dug that moment where this is, a. Uh, um, Sean Connery. So Jimmy asks Elliot Ness twice during this, what are you prepared to do? Right. And this is an underlying theme of how far is Elliot willing to go? Because Elliot doesn't, he wants to do whatever he can do as long as it doesn't break the law. Within the law. Within the law. That's right. exactly right. And, uh, and Jimmy, he's pushing him. He's pushing him that, you know, you're going to have to do more than that. It's going to take more than that. What are you prepared to do? But, you know, you got, you got that little moment, you know, you know, where, um, he, uh, he, he says to Elliot, you want to get Capone? I'll tell you how to get him. If he comes at you with a knife, you come at him with a gun. If he puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Yeah. Right there that, okay, it's going to, you're getting your hands dirty. And that's what he has to steal himself for. Elliot mm -hmm. has to steal himself to be more than what he's willing to give. Right. And and I think he, he takes all that to heart and he, you know. It's also a bit of foreshadowing in that Elliot Ness in the end does put one of his in the morgue. Oh, yeah. Well, I think he killed a couple of people probably. But mm -hmm. as far as what you're talking about, no, I, I agree with you 100%. Because mm -hmm. a lot of that was rage. Yeah, and, and a lot of that was wanting revenge. Yeah. So, and, and mm -hmm. he basically does get his hands dirty. Yeah, for sure. Um, what do you think about uh, when they go get Andy Garcia's character? I thought that was great the way that uh, Jimmy Malone uh, tries to spook Andy Garcia's character, tries to get him worked up, tries to get him upset until a point where he explodes. And then it's like, I like this guy. Yeah. Yeah, he pushes him a little bit, uh, regs on him for being a WAP, and uh, you know, but he uh, Andy Garcia's character was a good marksman, and I like I like I really like that recruitment scene. I think that any recruitment scenes in movies, you know, if you do it right, they're always fun. Yeah, you know, you think you think of the movie where they're recruiting the team. Um, mm. It, it's it's always a fun montage and and they push him at first they go why did you become a cop and he starts reciting you know the rules and all that don't tell me the textbook yeah why did you become a cop yeah yeah and then he pushes them and he pulls the gun oh i like him yeah i like him too yeah <laughs> and then uh, welcome to the treasury department yeah you just so, joined the treasury department so we have three of the four untouchables and then they get back and they need a fourth member well he finds 
he finds somebody, Elliot finds somebody sitting in his office. Oh, that's the accountant, right? Yeah. Or the, is he an accountant? What is Oscar? Yeah, he's basically an accountant, yeah. Yeah, Oscar is sitting in his office and he's talking about, you know, he hasn't, that Elliot um, should consider having uh, um, Capone arrested for tax evasion. Yeah. And he's like, well, again, right. foreshadowing. Yeah. And a little and, bug in his ear. Yeah. And they, and they kind of, uh, they kind of uh, gloss over that for a second because at the, at the moment, Elias, they are Elliot. They have uh, Jimmy, you have George, and now you're getting Oscar and they're going to go on their first, first raid together. And they we give, need, they, one, we need one more person. You carry a badge. Yes. Carry a gun. Yeah, and then the look of uh, Oscar's face when Malone gives him the gun, he's like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? But he gets pretty excited pretty quick. Yeah, he does. And so they go out on field work, and then this is where they have their successful bust, and this is where the papers dub them the Untouchables. Go into the scene where Capone is dealing with the people who were at, you know, running that hole where the bust happened, Um, and he's talking about the people around the table and baseball scene. Oh, you're talking about the big dinner? The big dinner scene. What'd you think of that whole speech he gives and then the way it kind of goes and the home run? To me, that scene was worth the price of admission. Uh, probably my favorite scene in the in the entire film. And it basically Al Capone telling his uh, people sitting around the table. I think they're different families. And I, I think it's his whole... His, his, his crime organization table. Yeah. And so he's talking about, you know, this is why he likes baseball. Uh, Baseball represents an individual at the plate. However, you have to have a team because without the team, the individual doesn't succeed. And basically what he's doing, he's, he's saying to his, his people, if you're going to go out on your own and try to fuck me, guess what? I'm going to find out. And this is what you get. And he pulls out a fucking bat and beats this guy to death. And I just, Robert De Niro plays it perfectly. I love the scene. Again, I like movies, again, when they say they're based on fact of things that have actually happened. And that actually happened in Capone's life. He found out that two of his people were conspiring against him to take over the crime family. And so he beat them mercilessly, both two people with a baseball bat in public in a restaurant. And still got away with it. That's the power that he had at that time. Well, that was also the 1920s. Yeah. So they didn't know. They didn't know any better. It was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love the look of everybody else at the table. We're yeah. like, okay, we'll be good. Wallace discovers that Capone has not filed an income tax return for four years and suggests that the team try and build a tax evasion case against him as Capone's network keeps him well insulated from his other crimes. An alderman offers Ness a bribe to drop his investigation, but Ness angrily refuses it. After Capone's enforcer Frank Nitty threatens Ness's family, Ness immediately moves his wife and daughter to a safe house. In a subsequent raid on the Canadian border, Ness and his team intercept an incoming liquor shipment. They kill several gangsters and capture a Capone bookkeeper named George, 
whom they eventually persuade to collaborate with them. Back in Chicago, as Wallace escorts George from the police station to a safe house, a disguised nitty shoots both of them dead. Ness confronts Capone at the Lexington Hotel after the murders, but Malone intervenes, urging Ness to focus on persuading the district attorney not to dismiss the charges against Capone. What did you think of that scene on the Canadian border? I loved that the Canadian police were Mounties, basically. They were all on horseback and you know, yeah. kind of almost felt uh, comical a little bit. Well, I, I kind of thought that, uh, for one, Kevin Costner looked a lot like a famous archaeologist that we I thought so too. all know and love. Uh, and with him on the horseback, it made it even look more like this archaeologist that we love. It, the scene kind of felt out of place, but at the same time, you know, they're dealing with prohibition. It was the 1920s. Uh, I thought the scene played out pretty well. I love what uh, Malone does to get the bookkeeper to talk. He already takes someone they killed, someone who was dead, and he plays like they're alive. And so uh, the bookkeeper can see all this going on and hear it, and he kills him again, <laughs> you know, to get the bookkeeper to talk. So I, that... I thought that was clever. The ultimate bad cop. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a really rich scene. Originally, the cabin was not a part of the script. They were supposed to be hiding behind a rock waiting for the the booze and and uh and Capone's people to show up that they were going to bust and they ended up going with the cabin because it would it was going to make it uh, a lot more convenient, if you will, for them to have downtime to where they could small talk. It's funny because during that scene, Sean Connery's character goes to every one of the characters and asks them, you know, are they ready? What are you thinking? And mm-hmm. he's just, they create dialogue there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I agree. The interrogation scene is wonderful, you know, he's acting crazy and then he comes back in. Okay. Now ask your questions. Yeah. And don't let him clean himself up. Yeah. <laughs> I also liked um, the character Wallace in this that, uh, you know, for being an accountant, you know, he got pretty good at taking him down. He yeah, had that he shotgun got, at the time. Yeah. He got his hands dirty and he, yeah. well, not got, he got he involved a, in the action for an accountant. So he, he was, was all into it. Yeah. He was pretty cool. Yeah. He was, uh, he was told by Brian De Palma, you got to look like you're having the time of your life and, you know, being an accountant and now you're out here in the wilderness with a shotgun and Brian De Palma was saying, you need to also take, take a sip from one of the barrels and uh, taking the sip, uh, Charles Martin Smith, he, he didn't want to. He's like, no, 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 no. He said, no, you need to. Yeah. No, no, that's not right. No, 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 no. Just do it. I think it's wrong, but okay. And so he films it. He watches the movie in the theater and he's like, Okay, he was right. Yeah, yeah, and and that and that's that's funny because they are fighting against prohibition, and here he is. He's going to stop after the gunfight and have a drink. But can you blame him? He was just in a fucking gunfight. Yeah, you know? he's got adrenaline. Oh yeah, pumping right for sure, absolutely. So a funny little thing about prohibition: prohibition is not it is not illegal to drink alcohol. So if you have alcohol, you can drink alcohol, but you had to purchase it before prohibition began. So just drinking alcohol is not illegal. I think, yeah, I think it works out to be the transportation and sale of alcohol at the time was illegal. 
But if you had it, you could use it. So they get this bookkeeper and they take him back to the courthouse. And this is where the old misdirection uh, missing them by that much happens. You know, you have Connery and Costner talking in the hallway. You uh, or is it is it Costner and Garcia? No, um, you have uh, in the hallway. It's uh, it's Oscar and George. Oh, that's right. Because they uh, George sends them down in the elevator by themselves and says something like good luck or, or yeah. just kind of talking to him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Oscar's like, I know, I know. Call to, and we're going to call twice. Yeah, I know. I, I got it. I got it. And is it when the door opens, when they get to the bottom that Nitty's standing there and shoots him in the Nitty is the ele- the police officer elevator attendant. And, oh, and so the, right. the elevator door is closing and we see that it is Nitty. That's right. We also, right right after this scene, get our first impression, you know, a little bit more about the corruption going on, that is the captain corrupt or not? Because he watches Nitty slowly walk to his car and drive away. Is that the same guy that Malone talks to later? Well, actually, um, no, we see the car that the accountant was supposed to be going in, in the alleyway, and a police officer lying dead, and we watch Nitty run and and then we watch the captain just make a sign of the cross so clearly he's a passive observer and yeah he's definitely on the take yeah and i believe this is who malone uh confronts later on later on yeah yeah so uh oscar is dead and elliot is pissed and they're back at stage one oh yeah because they don't have the witness anymore so capone's gonna get away with it and then we have uh, Elliot in a rage go over and confront Capone in the hotel. That's right. And and he comes in and uh, and he starts yelling at Capone coming down the stairs and uh, and then Al Capone he starts yelling, "How dare you say those things in front of my son? How dare you talk like that? You know, I'm gonna kill your fucking." And he's, yeah. Wait a minute. I and, and I think that scene is pretty. Uh, iconic too when he's coming down the stairs he's all dressed up and everyone's keeping kevin costner off of him and they're having that shouting match and i think that when i think of the untouchables that's one scene that immediately pops into my head as well besides the baseball scene and the fact that they again the palmas using symbolism here where al capone is on the stairs above everything he's still at this point surrounded by people still untouchable and so he is the you know, the ultimate at this point, untouchable because nobody can get to him, right? Because he's above it all. It's you know when they finally bring him down to the level of of Elliot Ness that he gets caught. Malone realizes that police chief Mike Dorsett sold out Wallace and George, and in a fight with Dorsett, forces him to reveal the whereabouts of Capone's head bookkeeper Walter Payne. This evening, one of Capone's men breaks into Malone's apartment. Malone chases him out with a shotgun, but falls victim to a Tommy gun ambush by Nitty. Shortly afterwards, Ness and Stone arrive at the apartment to find Malone mortally wounded. Before he dies, Malone shows them which train Payne will take out of town. As Ness and Stone await Payne's arrival at Union Station, they see a young mother with two suitcases and a child in a carriage laboriously climbing the lobby steps. Ness ultimately decides to assist her, but the gangsters who are guarding Payne appear as Ness and the woman reach the top of the stairs, and a bloody shootout takes place. Though outnumbered, Ness and Stone manage to capture Payne alive and kill all his escorts without harm to the mother or the child. So they're in kind of a 
they're in a crunch. They don't have their main witness anymore. And so Malone decides, you know, I'm going to go call this, the what is he, the captain or the police chief? I'm going to go call the police chief on his shit, right? Because we used to work together. We're around, and he's probably the reason why Malone is still a beat cop. I but, bet, yeah. But because they, I what I'm gathering is because they had a, a history and a respect for each other, that's why Malone's even a cop and still alive probably. So they have this slug out and Malone's like, you dirty bastard, you know what's going on. Fucking tell me. And they get into a fight and he gets his way. And then we then we get to the part of the movie where I have the biggest problem. Where Malone gets killed? Yeah, where Malone gets killed. The guy breaks into his apartment. Malone knows what's going on. The, the killer thinks he's going to get the jump on him. And then Malone is there. I don't know why Malone just doesn't blow his head off. I was wondering if... The whole point of the guy in the apartment was to lead Malone outside, or was he actually trying to kill Malone? Because at first we see all the scenes of him outside looking in at Malone, walking around. And then he comes in and he's trying to kill him with his hand. You know, was he, it, he has a switchblade. With a switchblade, knowing that this is a cop's a house or apartment who's obviously going to be armed. And then he just slowly backs out, and Malone follows him out into the alleyway where they gets you know shot. Yeah, well, I think that this guy was actually sent to kill Malone and Nitty, who was waiting outside with a Tommy gun, was backup in case Malone tried That's to run. That's what I thought, too. Yeah, and obviously this this uh, thug was inept and couldn't get the job done, and which I still don't understand why Malone just doesn't uh, shoot his head off, but he doesn't. I know why. Why? Well, I, ha- I have a thought. All right, hit me. He's going to have to clean up the mess. Oh, good point. It's his home. Take it out back. My first thought, too. It's not bad. It's not bad logic. Was maybe he wanted to take him alive and use him against Capone, be another person he could possibly break and use against Capone. It, it could be a possibility. However, he's so low level at yeah. this point in the in the structure of the mob, probably, that he, would, he wouldn't be any good to him. He'd be a small fish in a big yeah. pond. So what you need is fucking nitty, right? Right. Now, the reason why Jimmy went to see the police chief was because they did not have a witness for the for the trial to proceed with. And the, the death of the bookkeeper made Elliot Ness's case dead in the water. Right. And so uh, Jimmy felt, okay, I'm going to get the, uh, I'm going to get what we need. And that's why he confronts the police chief. Right. The big thing that he needed was someone who could read the book mm-hmm. because the book was coded. Oh, yeah. They still had the book from the first book. Uh, so they had bookkeeper. the book, so they right. needed basically another bookkeeper. Right. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the camera work that they did with with, with this, uh, with the, the person uh, lurking outside and then lurking inside. Yeah. I think that's classic to Palma. He's done films like Body Double yeah. and uh, Blowout yeah. with John Travolta, but it, the the POV of the camera is kind of a staple of yeah. Brian De Palma. So yeah, that was pretty good. And then uh, so the the death scene uh, that uh, Connery with all the blood. Uh, De Palma he wanted to film it again, but Connery hated doing the scene because of all the blood and he refused to even go back to the set for a couple of hours. And so De Palma ended up just kind of sort of thinking, well, maybe what I got is good enough because of the tantrum that Connery was throwing about 
the scene and all of the blood. Longest death scene ever goes to Sean Connery. How is that dude not dead by the time Kevin Costner gets there? Because of the 47 bullet holes that he got from Nitty? Yeah. Because he's an old, stubborn Irish cop. And how... With the Scottish action. What, what is that, like 20 yards he dragged, you know... How many liters of blood are between the back door and the living room? Oh, right, because you crawls back into the fucking living room. But, yeah. but as you know, our our off mic discussions have proven, he did satisfy his first lesson, which is you know make it home alive. He just died at home alive, or right. died. He died at home alive. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he made it home. And yeah. So he crawled from outside and he made it home. But here's the thing. He, he didn't need duty. he didn't need to die. They if they were gonna kill him, I think they should have done it in a more creative way. But again, I guess it was the twenties and whatever, he's uh, dead. Again, you know, I understand they're trying to give Elliot Ness even more gumption that he's gonna have to kill Nitty in the end and blah blah blah. I kinda like would have liked it. Maybe I'm just, you know, old school, but I would have liked it if Yes, we don't know if he lived or died, but in the end, Elliot Ness visits him in the hospital and says, we got him. Who does he visit in the hospital? Visits uh, Malone in the hospital. Jimmy. Oh, Jimmy. he does? No, I'm no. saying I would have liked it if that's oh, how the movie turned yeah. out. Well, you know, that he still lived, you know, lived to get his pension with a few more holes in him, but Elliot Ness lets him know, we got him. Yeah, but it, it was that death scene that definitely got him the Academy Award. <laughs> For having the most holes in them. Yeah, and still breathing. Okay. So there you have it. The uh, the death scene was really long, right? Him gasping, wait, he's still alive? Oh, my gosh. Okay, now, okay. And then he hands him his uh, his his, uh, his his beads and, and, and the key. No, 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 I don't want that. I want the paper. Jeez Louise, yeah. you're still alive? Yeah. And then he gets the paper and tells him where uh, this accountant, uh, this bookkeeper is going to be. And now it's the, up to George. The train and station. George and uh, Elliot to solve it. And now we get to the train station. And this this was a, a whenever you talk about the Untouchables, this scene also comes to mind because it, it, it does a good job of building the tension. And I think they actually teach this scene in film school. I wouldn't be surprised. Or, or they show this scene in film school because it, it's a way of uh, drawing out the tension. And this is where the famous scene with the steps. And I still don't know why Kevin Costner goes to help that lady, but whatever. Well, you know that this scene is based off of another movie scene. They actually almost did it identically to a scene, uh, a scene uh, that was uh, originally uh, Sergei Einstein's 1925 film, Battle Potomac. Oh, I've heard that, actually. Yeah, and yeah, you can I actually go that. on YouTube and, and see this scene, and it has the same woman with the same uh, baby carriage trying to go down the stairs slowly, and, blah, 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 and then all these gun actions happen, and all you see is this carriage bouncing down the steps. It's the same as the Kevin Costner scene yeah. with the... Carriage going down the steps and everything. Yeah. yeah. I, I like that. I like the bit in that scene uh, when, you know, Andy Garcia comes running, tosses Kevin Costner the gun, slides, and Kevin Costner just calmly says, you got him? And Andy Garcia's like, I got him. And then mm -hmm. he's like, take it. And that was that. And his excellent uh, marksmanship skills definitely come to save the day here. And the moment that the action starts unfolding, we uh, we have the exclusion 
of any dialogue. The the mother, we can't hear her. We only have the sound of the baby carriage and the gunfire. And it is exclusively pointing out the significance and what is important in this scene. And so I, I thought that was a really nice touch as well. The, uh, the fact that uh, George comes sailing in with a handgun and throws it to him right after Elliot runs out of bullets, it's like, uh, okay. That was convenient. Yeah, well, you're going along for this ride, and so uh, the job of a filmmaker is to make sure that you believe every step of the way on this journey. And at that point, Andy Garcia coming with a gun in to save the day, that's fine. It was, it was good. Because I like the Andy Garcia's character, so yeah, I did too. He yeah. he he was a a fun character to have for this scene. Did you feel uh, that the buildup of the tension was necessary, or did it seem like it went on a little long? Uh, I think that like some Brian De Palma films, I think it went on a little bit long, um, but that could just be my attention span. Mm-hmm. You know, could we have cut a couple of? cuts here and there a couple of frames yeah yeah probably yeah but Mm -hmm. what do i know later when Payne testifies at capone's trial ness observes that capone appears strangely calm and that nitty is wearing a gun in the courtroom the bailiff removes nitty and searches him finding a note from chicago mayor william hale thompson which effectively permits him to carry the weapon however Ness sees Malone's address written on a matchbook in Nitty's possession and realizes that Nitty is Malone's killer. Panicked, Nitty shoots the bailiff before fleeing to the courthouse roof as Ness pursues him. After Nitty expresses his contempt for Malone and gloats that he will never be convicted for the murder, Ness pushes Nitty off the roof to his death. Well, first you got to point out that in real life, Nitty never died. He actually, after Capone went to jail, he went on to run the crime family. Cool. Yeah, he lived for like another 12 years or something like that. Oh, did he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, at least they got his name right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, Billy Drago, how awesome was he in this role? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, Whenever Nitty was on screen, you, you had to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. He, sinister. You, you, he, sinister, great he, word. He yeah. seethed sinisterness. Yeah. He, he plays bad guys in a lot of different movies and TV shows. And I think he always does a great job. Yeah, he was. He was yeah, he was one of the go-to bad guys in the eighties. Yeah. So Briscoe was, County Junior. You ever watch that show? Oh, sure. No. Yeah, yeah. He was the bad guy. Yeah. Was he the ongoing bad guy? Yeah. He was a reoccurring he, character. He was oh, the okay. top bad guy for the first season, I think. Oh, gotcha. Uh, you know, against Bruce Campbell's character. Mm-hmm. So, who do you like better as the bad guy? Do you like Robert De Niro better as the bad guy, or do you like uh, Drago? Oh. Billy Drago better as the bad guy. De Niro, hands down. So it was a it was a, a big push to get De Niro for the role because they offered it to De Niro and he and he said, mm, "Okay, I'll do it." And then he gave an, an amount way out of their price range. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, all right, I guess we'll have to get somebody else. And they did end up getting somebody else. John, who'd they get? Do you remember? Was it uh, Marlon Brando? No. Or no, I'm sorry. The one that they had backup was Bob Hoskins. Yes, they got Bob Hoskins. And then eventually um, they said, it's, we have to have Robert De Niro. And if we get Robert De Niro, we're going to have to pay that money. He goes, we have to have him. And so as a result, they decided 
that's what we're going to do. And so they went and they paid the Robert De Niro money. But yeah. they also had to pay Bob Hoskins off since they had him on standby. Yeah. They paid him six figures to yeah. be yeah. to be on standby. And so uh, and and he was okay with that. And he ended up going back to De Palma and he said, you know, anytime you want to have me not be in one of your movies, I'll I'll be happy to do that mm-hmm. again. The great thing about Robert De Niro and why I think he's great in every movie he's in is he's a method actor and that he gets into the roles in this role. He purposely gained 30 pounds to try to look like Capone. He wore the same silk underwear that Al Capone actually wore. And he went out and found some tailors who made suits for Capone and had those tailors come out of retirement to make his suits. So I thought he was just, I mean, for as much as he's actually in the movie, which, which, is, which, which is, is not, not a lot. lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As much as he's actually, you know, he is Al Capone. He feels those roles. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. So Brian De Palma, when, when he finally met uh, Robert De Niro, you know, and he's, he's okay. He's playing Al Capone. Brian De Palma was shocked, floored by how humble and timid Robert De Niro was as they were going through stuff. And he's like talking to his producer later, like, are you sure this is the guy we, this is, this is the guy we were, you're using. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this is it. De Niro kind of strikes me as that kind of actor, I guess. Uh, I, I would, I would always think of uh, who would I'd want to hang out with. Uh, I'd love to hang out with Robert De Niro. I bet you that would just be fun. Uh, another person, uh, Kevin Costner getting this role. In him getting this role, this was a, uh, um, he was largely unknown and he had um, very, uh, very limited uh, exposure. And and for him to get this role, when when he got it, he was relatively unknown and he wasn't really sold on Kevin Costner. And it turns out that it took a lot of cajoling and people around him saying, no, he's, he's going to be good for this. And, and eventually he, he goes out and he talks to fellow directors and, and eventually it's pretty much a bunch of his support group that said, he's your guy. He, and so De Palma ended up being the last person that ended up supporting. All right, we'll take Costner. Who, who did they originally want? They had a couple of other names. I, I, I saw wasn't Mickey Rourke one of them? Mickey Rourke, the top one. They originally, I think, he came close to being Elliot Ness. Oh wait, he turned he turned the role down. Yeah, Don Johnson, because he was big at the time. Do you know where Brian De Palma got Don Johnson from? I I, I recall, but why don't you tell us? Giorgio Armani. Mm-hmm. Oh really? The the uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, but in the credits at the beginning, the uh, costume design is credited to Giorgio Armani. Mm-hmm. So in the Miami Vice days, you know, a couple of years before, Giorgio Armani is all that Don Johnson wore. When they were uh, brought on board for the Untouchables, it was suggested, you should you should think about using Don Johnson for this role. I think that that would be a good Elliot Ness for you. Imagine where Don Johnson's career would have gone had he been Elliot Ness in this movie and not Kevin Costner. Probably the same place it is now. You think so? You don't yeah. think he would have gotten more roles that maybe Kevin no. Costner ended up getting? I don't think so. I know that they also thought about having, well, Mel Gibson wanted to play the role and didn't get it. 
and they considered Harrison Ford at the time. I could see Harrison Ford doing Elliot Ness, but he's played similar characters in other movies. Oh, for sure. I have one more little tidbit about Giorgio Armani. So the entire cast is decked out in Giorgio Armani. Sean Connery wanted nothing to do with that wardrobe. He thought it was ridiculous, and he ended up supplying his own clothing for the character of Jimmy. It kind of looks like it. Yeah, everyone's dressed to the nine, and Connery is not. So, interesting. Didn't know that. But it makes sense. I can see Connery not wanting to climb on board with Armani. Right? Yeah, even Why though, are you wearing that clothes? Arr, he looked like an old crotchety bastard. Even though he did a great job in this movie. He was amazing in this movie. Wasn't it the case that he would come, film his scenes, and then immediately go off and golf the rest of the day? I know that that was something that was talked about, that he would do that. I don't know if it was a regular occurrence or what. Yeah, give him like two hours of his time and then spend the rest of the day golfing. Yeah, well, when you're Sean Connery at that point, I guess you can do that. I wonder if he was like that on his other films, like Red October or The Rock or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to know. Robin Hood. Fuck, he was in Robin Hood for two seconds. So totally. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You forgot Highlander. And like most people should. Um so Ness knows that Nitty killed Malone, and so he chases him up on the roof. They have some dialogue, and Ness just flat out pushes him off the fucking roof. He says, fuck this guy, and just pushes him. You know, your friend, he squealed like a stuck pig when I killed him. Did he sound anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and taunt the guy who's going to push you off the fucking roof. That's the thing I never understand. I mean, I know the bad guys like to twist the knife. But you know you've almost pushed this officer to the edge. He's going to let you live. So let's just twist that knife a little bit more and see if I can get him to kill me. Well, I think it goes into the whole bit of the villain's monologuing. That's what he was doing. He was monologuing while monologuing and twisting the knife at the same time. Costner has no choice but to push him off the fucking roof. Yeah. That is some great camera work that happens up on the roof. Yeah. Especially when uh, when Nydia is... uh, plunging to his death yeah it, yeah and it's all practical i mean it's all back in the days where cameras weighed 800 pounds right so there's a lot of cranes and a lot of different ways that you could shoot things and it's certainly not as not as uh movable as it is now when the uh, um verdict is done and we finally get to see al capone lose his cool that was a satisfying moment for me when uh the the uh the the judge he's he's banging away on the gavel but everybody in the courthouse is just like there's a sea of people that are pushing their way towards him and the bailiffs or or his lawyers or whatever are trying to hold al capone back mm-hmm. that was a satisfying ending for me to see al, al capone uh losing his cool yeah for sure. i i and again i like when they bring in true life elements and in the capone case that actually happened with the jury. That the jury swap. That the judge got word that the jury had been bought off, so he traded juries with another courtroom. Mm-hmm. And so again, I like when they kind of stick a little bit to those historical facts. Well, you said that you like when they stick to all of the historical facts because if they change it, you don't like it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but it's 
And I also want the machines to win. Okay, but it's not telling us that the that the uh, story is based on an, on actual events. Now, I I get what you're saying, but the first time you saw the movie, I I, I wonder you enjoyed it more before you found out that it's not true life stuff. Well, to be honest, I think one of the first times I saw it, I had looked ahead and looked up the history of Al Capone and Elliot Ness. So I already oh, knew really? it. So it tainted the movie a little bit for me. The performances were still great, but it tainted, you know, I kept looking for certain things to happen. I'm thinking, that's not the way it happened. Why? <laughs> and I, why, I why would you do that before the movie? I do that. Yeah, why? It's like if I hear a comic book movie's coming out based off of a certain comic, I go back and reread that comic before I go and see the movie. None of them are based off specific comics. They're, yeah. they're based... Let me rephrase that. They're based off portions of comics and probably a bunch of them. So, I mean, there's so much source material. That's what I'm saying. I can understand how you're disappointed after you find out. But boy, oh boy. He sets himself up from failure from the get-go. You, yeah. you, you don't want to like it. Not at I, all. I will say I did have one movie in particular where uh, it, it really deflated me after the movie... I, the movie high that I had for that movie and then finding out more, oh, it didn't really happen like that. And I didn't, oh, oh. Bohemian Rhapsody. Loved it when I saw it in the theater the first time. And then, oh, well, it didn't quite happen like that. Oh, and that didn't happen either. And, and that never happened. And I'm like, and they didn't emphasize that or that or that or that. It's like, oh. And so now I'm like, eh, it's all right. Stone gives Nest a list taken from Nitty's coat, which shows that the jurors in the trial have been bribed. Behind closed doors, Nest persuades the judge to switch Capone's jury with one hearing an unrelated divorce case. This prompts Capone's lawyer to enter a guilty plea. Although Capone is outraged and violently objects, Capone is later found guilty of tax evasion and sentenced to 11 years in prison. On the day Capone begins serving his sentence, Nest closes up his offices, giving Malone's St. Jude medallion and call box key to Stone as a farewell. As Ness leaves the police station, a reporter mentions the probable repeal of prohibition, asking Ness what he will do in that case. Ness replies, I think I'll have a drink. I guess that takes us to the end of the movie. Yeah. Was the judge on that list? I don't think he was, and, and no, uh, Ness, Ness was playing But he uh, pretended a bluff. like he was on the list. Right, 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 right. Yeah, according to the dialogue in the movie, um, he said to the judge that he's going to reveal that he's in the book. And then the attorney says, but he's not in the book. And then Elliot's like, but he didn't know that. Right, and so the judge does do it because he was exactly. a dirty judge. Exactly. Yeah, so it was one of those bait and switch things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about the end of this movie where he says, I'll go, I'm going to go have a drink or I'll have a drink is the really Elliot Ness did go on to become an alcoholic. Yeah. I read that somewhere. Yeah. I, and I guess he ended up, uh, when he did pass away, he had very little money and even more interesting or bittersweet, I, I guess not bittersweet, but when Elliot Ness passes away, nobody in Chicago made any mention of it. It was completely unnewsworthy and there was no mention in any Chicago news about Elliot Ness passing away. Yeah. Mm. It wasn't really out there the whole way that he helped take down Capone. That story wasn't 
really pushed much until you know Elliot has started to help writing the scripts for the movies and things like that for the TV shows. So he wasn't known about for like 20, 30 years after that. Yeah, hmm. interesting. But, but oh, I was just going to say this movie is based a lot more. Uh, it's inspired by a lot more the the television series of the Untouchables, right? Mm-hmm. Rather yeah. than the actual facts of things, right? That's what we had stated earlier. Yeah, he he ended up dying, I think, at fifty four years old. Really? So he was yeah, pretty young. He wasn't that old. As you wow. mentioned, he died broke because they say he never took any of the mob's money, no crime money, all no payoffs, anything like that. So he just had the cop money and he ended up not being a cop after right. You know, pretty right. quick after this whole thing went down. He went on to become like a security guard for something and do some other stuff because of his drinking caused him a lot of problems. He was divorced three times. Um, but he still, I think, ended up a little bit better than Al Capone, who died in jail. Syphilis. From syphilis. Mm-hmm. They said by the time that Al Capone died, uh, because syphilis attacks the brain, he had the mentality of a 12-year-old. Well, there you go. You want to see Robert De Niro play someone with the mentality of a 12-year-old? That could be interesting. Yeah. And then Nitty. Wait, isn't that Patch Adams? That's Robin Williams. No, Patch Adams. No. But Robert De Niro. Awakenings. 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 Thank you. Welcome. But I'm thinking also... Uh, Good Nitty, call. <laughs> because of Prohibition ending and everything, Nitty was able to take the crime family in a different direction where they focused on prostitution, labor union racketing, and gambling. No, he didn't. Nitty got pushed off the fucking roof. Well, in the, in the movie. Yeah. And in real life because it was based on a true story. Yeah. And everything that happens in movies, I believe. Fuck that guy. <laughs> well i think this is the time of the podcast where we're gonna rate this film ken how do we rate this we rate this movie by taking a, a a gander at what is on the tv to watch as you scroll through looking for different movies to watch how likely are you willing to stop and watch something a one is i'm gonna pass right by that movie i'm not gonna see any of it and a five is i Oh, I need to watch it now and I will watch it all the way to the end. And so five is going to mean that it will always trump whatever else you're going to pick. Yeah, there you have it. Uh, Since this was your pick, good sir, by all means. This movie, like I was commenting earlier, it is shot so so beautifully. There are a lot of dramatic camera angles that are emphasized the color, the uh, the the crisp the crispness of the characters. I really appreciated how pretty things looked on the screen, the richness of the color, and I really felt like you know it was it was an older story insofar as you know it takes place in the 1930s. The way the characters talked, the 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 properness. Of uh, uh, of Elliot Ness's character in the way that he would talk, would you excuse me, please? Would you please step out? And then, okay, excuse me. Would you please step in? Just the properness I felt in it, and I cannot get enough of Sean Connery's Jimmy. I loved Jimmy. Jimmy, anytime he was on the screen, he was the best part of it, and he totally deserved his Oscar in my eyes. And really sells the movie for me that makes it so enjoyable for me to watch it. The uh, the music sounds 
really nice. I, I I still think about some of the some of the music, like like when they're walking across the street, going to the uh, post office for the first time, uh, when they are uh, up in the Canadian wilderness at the bridge. I really enjoyed the uh, the sweeping of the music as they are taking uh, all of the bad guys down. I I think that this uh, is Kevin Costner's. Uh, really breakout movie that this makes Kevin Costner a movie star after this. He is really strong in this, and I really enjoy watching Costner in this every time. I think that this movie is a solid four. Wow. So you're going to watch it over a lot of other movies. Yeah. I'll go. <clears throat> okay. All right. So The Untouchables. Uh, well, it is nicely shot. And the story is coherent. Uh, Robert De Niro is always a delight. Sean Connery is Sean Connery. I think you have more of a love for that guy than I do, which is fine. Uh, Kevin Costner, I would I would argue that Bull Durham made him a movie star. And I'm pretty sure Bull Durham came out in 86, but we can look at that. Either way, uh, Kevin Costner, did his star did rise because of this film. And... Kevin Costner, I think, is one of those actors that, to me, he got better with age. When I think of Kevin Costner, I think of uh, Bull Durham. I think of Waterworld, uh, this. Uh, but I do really enjoy him Jonathan in, Kent. say, The Man of Steel, right? Uh, when he plays Jonathan Kent. So I, I like Kevin Costner as an actor. There's a movie called Draft Day where he drafts NFL players. It's the NFL draft. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I recommend you check it out it's i really enjoy it um but getting back to the untouchables i think that you know for 87 and the the subject matter uh it being classified kind of as a gangster flick i think this is one of the first gangster flicks we get after the godfather i mean that really uh really makes some noise there's once upon a time in mexico king of new york things like that not not Mexico. Once upon America. a time in America. Thank you, uh, again with Robert De Niro. Uh, so I think there there's a, a um, I think that this film was okay as a gangster flick. It wasn't really kind of what I expected. If I'm scrolling through the channels and I see that this is on, chances are I'm going to skip it. Chances are, I mean, I've seen it once. I can appreciate it. There's nothing in this film that jumps out at me and says oh we have to, we have to watch this uh so for me i am going to give the untouchables probably a very unpopular 2.5 sounds good when did goodfellas come out 93 so or that 91. came out on- Nin- 91 91 so that came out after this yeah well yeah if this was in 87 87 okay that's interesting <laughs> um anyway for my review uh great movie in that they had some star talent in it. Kevin Costner, as you said, breakout role. Um, I agree. May not have been his you know, first Hollywood busting kind of role, but really showed what he could do. Uh, Sean Connery. I love just about everything Sean Connery was in. Mm-hmm. Um, the other actors, Andrew Garcia, nice introduction to him. I thought he did a fantastic job. Uh, it was a good movie overall, and I'm glad I watched it. Gangster movies, mob movies, those kind of movies aren't really my cup of tea. I don't typically 
go out looking to watch those movies. I do like to watch movies that are a little closer, obviously, to historical fact. You know, I like when they portray what really happened versus rewriting it. But again, this was based off of the TV show more than it was based off of real facts. So they had some liberty in that. When it comes to would I watch this movie if it was on, I'm kind of in the same ballpark as you, Don. Um, I've seen it. I'm glad I've seen it. Don't think I'm going to stop and watch it if it's on. I am going to watch, if there's nothing else on, I am going to kind of skip over to it every so often to catch certain scenes. I'd like to rewatch those scenes with De Niro. Thought he did a fantastic job. Watch those scenes with uh, Sean Connery because I love, like I said, everything that Sean Connery does. So I, I wouldn't mind watching those scenes over. The rest of it, I could skip right through and not care. Yeah. So because of that, even though I think it's a well-made movie, the camera shots are fantastic. It's obvious what they were trying to do with, you know, the over-the-head shots, the same level shots, showing Capone up kind of above, things like that, and then showing him at the same level, you know, in the courtroom scenes. I get what De Palma was trying to do, and I think this is a good movie for film students to watch specifically for those camera angles. But again, I'm going to skip by it just if I want to watch something on a you know weekend and watch something good. So for that reason, I was actually thinking 2.5 as well. And I'm giving it the 0.5 because there are certain scenes I would like to rewatch, but not the whole movie. Interesting. Let me ask you this. Do you like Quentin Tarantino? I do. Did you ever see Inglorious Bastards? I have, in fact, yes. And you know that they kill Hitler, right? Yes. So they rewrote history. Yes, and that was the only thing that bothered me about that movie. I thought that really was, you didn't like that. I thought the movie was good overall, but that did bother me. Oh, I fucking loved it. Yeah. I fucking loved it. We yeah. we got him. I like cool. What was his name? The big bear. Uh, the Jew bear. The Jew bear. I yeah. liked that. I loved those characters in the movie. Thought it was a great movie. Quentin Tarantino makes tells a good story. Yeah, he does. He tells a good story. But you know, again. That whole ending, it just bothered me that, okay, again, they're rewriting history. So it, it then takes it from being based on a true story to alternate universe. I suppose. I suppose that's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. All right. This is the time of the podcast where we select our next film. Uh, what we did was we each wrote down five movies that we enjoyed, and we folded them up and put them into a Bronco helmet. Uh, so far, we've reviewed... Four of mine, maybe three of mine, and three of Ken's. Uh, and so now we're going to pick another. And none of John's. I'd like to mention that we have not selected any of John's yet. Which I think is on purpose. I think there is a scandal going on here. Possibly. All right. So we're picking out our movie. And the next movie we are going to review is... We interrupt this podcast for a special announcement. Coming next week, we're starting off the new year with a special guest. She is a friend of the show and has asked us to review the 1999 Galaxy Quest. So tune in next week as we set off on a quest. A quest for fun. Now, back to that podcast fucking thing. Um, all right, so that's going to do it for this evening's podcast. Uh, John, where can they find us? They can find us at our website, which is threeguysandaflick.com. They can also find us on Twitter, on Facebook, as well as any popular podcasting hosting site like Spotify, iTunes. We're on them all. All right. So uh, we just want to thank our loyal our loyal listener and uh, 
We'll catch you next time. I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. 